The Bain Free Radio Hour. Hi, everybody. It's David F. Sharirad here. And uh, as some of you probably know, we lost David Drake, one of the giants of the field, late last year. And I'm here with some of his friends and collaborators and colleagues uh, to talk about the man, his life, and his legacy. Uh, joining me today is Tony Weiskopf, Griffin Barber, Tony Daniel, and Mark Van Name. Uh, I'm sure most of you listening to this have read David Drake or know who he is. He is the author of the Hammer Slammers uh, series, the RCN series. He's really one of the creators of the modern military science fiction genre, sometimes referred to as uh, the dean of military science fiction, and uh, also wrote in uh, other genres as well, particularly sort of um, fantasy and uh, even horror. He was uh, the owner of, for some time of a small press, collected pulp magazines, uh, and of course was a veteran himself. And uh, so we're just uh, here today to honor his legacy and his life. So thank you all for being here. Um, I guess maybe could we start just, uh, when was the first time, if you want to talk about this, each of you in turn, that you encountered uh, David Drake, his his work? Presumably most of you have um, encountered his work before the man, but if that's not the case, then, then when you first met him. Um, and uh, we may have uh, S.M. Sterling joining us here in a moment, and if so, we will welcome him in. But uh, let's just go ahead and get started. Uh, I don't, Tony Weiskopf, maybe you can kick this off. Um, what was your first encounter with uh, David Drake, whether through the written word or in the flesh? It, it was the written word. Um, I was a teenager in uh, going to conventions in um, Southern fandom. So in, in uh, Huntsville and uh, Birmingham and Chattanooga. There's Steve. Hey, Steve. Um, and Sorry. The, uh, <laughs> it's great God, glad we're, we were just telling uh we were just telling dave stories um getting warmed up and um and all of the people who were welcoming me into fandom were also pushing dave drake's work on me and said you absolutely have to read this guy so this is uh this is late 70s early 80s um and then of course when i, when I graduated from college i came to work for bain and um and and Jim and I, we were publishing Dave Drake from the very beginning at Bain, and uh, I got the chance to to know Dave uh, personally um, as an author, and um, and also just as um, uh, as a mentor, uh, someone who was actively welcoming me to the field and um, and and encouraging my work and encouraging me in my work. Uh, it was amazing. <laughs> he was he was just he, it, it was such a um a, a nice thing to do, right? To you know to welcome this person straight out of fandom um um as a professional colleague and to be treated that way. Um to say that was true of Larry Niven and Joe Cornell and, and all of Jim's friends um, as well. I, I, I was never condescended to or, or made to feel like I didn't belong. It was uh, it was absolutely, hey, we're so glad you're here um, and uh, read my stuff, you know. <laughs> so, and and Dave, Dave was the first. He, he was the first of those guys to do that. So that was my that was my encounter. Yeah, see, we're, I, I just kind of asked everybody if they would share the their first encounter with Dave Drake, David Drake, whether it be in the flesh or through the written word. So um, I don't know. Do you want to do you want to jump in here and um, address that? 
Well, I read Dave's stuff, um, the Hammer Slammer stuff, first of all, um, published by Bain, if I recall correctly. Oh, and first, thought, first at Galaxy, then at Ace, then at Bain. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I thought it was great. I still do. Um, and I've read everything he published since then, including I reread the stuff he did with me. And then uh, I, uh, let's see, my career hit a serious bump in the 80s because I was orphaned. Uh, the editor I sold my first books to, Sheila Gilbert, moved publishers. The new, the new editor uh, said, well, we're bumping you because we got some Arthur C. Clarke reprint rights, <laughs> which, which was a bit daunting. Uh, so I, um, I sent some stuff to Bain. Jim bought it. And then he put me together with uh, some other authors to do collaborations. Now, that was a very variable process. Some of them just gave me a single page of suggestions. But uh, with Dave, it was different. Um, we did a series called The General. It's a sort of based on the Byzantine general, uh, Belisarius, but in space. And after the collapse of a star-faring civilization. And we talked about it a good deal. And I was extremely impressed by uh, Dave's knowledge of classical stuff, which he could read in the original, um, which was a bit daunting. And of course, Dave uh, could write military science fiction with a certain authority because he'd been a soldier himself and in a fairly active area like the Parrot's Peak in Cambodia in the late 60s. Um, and then he sent me outlines with these books were around 150,000 words and he sent me a 40,000 page outline. Uh, so not a 40,000 page, 40,000 word <laughs> outline. 40,000 pages would be excessive even for Dave. Um, virtually every scene was outlined. And you know, you might think that was restrictive, but it wasn't, it was liberating. I could concentrate on writing it scene by scene. Um, and I did. And while I did, I picked up uh, sort of by osmosis, as well as by, oh, that's how he does it, um, strong hints on how to structure and plot. I don't do it exactly the same way Dave did, but I learned a great deal um, by writing with him that way. Uh, and he was very pleased with the results. He told me once that the only thing that was different in from what he had imagined was that they were using Martini Henrys and Winchesters instead of Trapdoor Springfields and uh, Henry Rifles. Um, and it was it was just fun to do. You know, it was a planet with dinosaurs. Everything goes better with dinosaurs. And they were riding giant dogs instead of horses. And I had fun working out the, the consequences of, well, you know, dogs and horses just have very different personalities. And dogs are social carnivores like we are. That's why we got together with dogs first of all the animal species because we're just compatible we've got similar instinctual social systems and that made a big difference and i read up a lot on byzantium and, and belisarius and that sort of thing which was fun in itself i i'm a compulsive researcher i started out to be a historian and then i switched to law because my parents thought it would be more practical and then I picked a really sensible, practical career, writing science fiction and fantasy for a living. Um, I, I, I should mention, too, just very quickly, uh, the, because of the dogs, one of the dogs was named after Dave's dog. 
and, and, and we got photographs of the dog and the, there's a portrait of Dave's dog on the first one. Yeah. And then the, there's a portrait of my dog, Harvey, on the second one. <laughs> so. is, that, is that Horace? Yes, yes, it is. It is Horace. And, and actually, Harvey is going to make another appearance later on in these anecdotes. So just hold, hold that thought. Who did the covers on those original General Ashwood Hall books? I'm, I'm, I, I think it was Paul Alexander. I'm trying to remember. I don't. I cut. I was looking for them on my shelves. I don't have them. Um, but um, could have been Gary Rudell. But I think. But I. But I think it was Paul Alexander, the same guy who did um, the Hammer Slammers books. Yeah. So. So we had fun. I mean, that was one of the things you know that you could do with Dave, was have fun, in not just in the reading and the editing of the book, but the whole process of publishing could be fun with Dave. So. Yeah, he understood it well too. Yes. Which I, didn't, which I didn't at the time, and I learned a great deal about it from him. Um, and Dave was good at understanding people. He wasn't a glad hander or a very social guy, but he understood his friends very well. And uh, that was, he was actually quite formidable at that. He understood people's motivations well, which is necessary for a writer. And I learned a great deal about that from him. Uh, and we, we met mostly at conventions and that sort of thing. We'd always get together when we were at the same convention, at dinner, spend some time talking, talk about history, talk about possible books, talk about what we were working on. Oh, by the way, do you know how many authors it takes to change a light bulb? Forget about that. Let me tell you about my light bulb. Um, so... It was it was a pleasure knowing Dave. He was a real gentleman. He was he was completely reliable. His word was very good, um, which is not something you can always count on with people, but you could with Dave. Well, Tony Daniel, I think uh, you also have some experience collaborating with David Drake, uh, also on the General series. So um, I don't think that was probably the first time you encountered. Uh, you, you know, he came into your sphere, but. Um, Maybe you could uh, answer that original question, then also talk about yeah um, your experience sure. collaborating with him. Oh, it was the first time. That, okay, that I encountered it. Um, well, I you know I I was uh, writing uh, ad copy and <laughs> jacket copy for the books for his books before I ever met him. But uh, when I um, I got the gig to. Uh, bring back a couple of there's, there's some Dave Drake outlines left over from the general series. There's one in particular called The Heretic. Um, and um, I had a look at it and I was going to, we were going to uh, write it. I um, I came up with and it, you know, these things were, like Steve said, they're amazingly intricate outlines. Um, this one is, I believe, twelve thousand words. Um, it, you know, it's scene by scene, yes, and uh, it it was so. Uh, I was like, I can do this. Here it is, <laughs> and um, <laughs> yeah. And but I, you know, I I also had to imagine the world because there were things that he'd left out and things that because he'd written it to Steve, um, he was addressing Steve directly. In the outline, <laughs> telling them things, and you know this and that from this and that, and and like, and I was like, this is twenty years later, and I was like, 
I don't know these things. <laughs> Pick them up. So, um, so anyway, I, um, I came up with a couple of subplots that I thought um, might be cool. And, uh, but, you know, I, I'd heard from Tony and, and others that, that Dave could be irascible. <laughs> he might, you know, he didn't suffer fools gladly. So I, um, I wrote up my notes and uh, I was terrified. I, I never met him. Um, even though I'd, I'd worked with him, uh, I'd never met him. And uh, I emailed him the uh, my notes, and and he sent me three sentences back in his reply, which is, "This is fine. <laughs> what you wrote is will work as long as you just stick to the outline." And I wrote him back, and um, I said, "Are you sure?" And uh, he's like. I said, do you want to elaborate? You've had 20 years to stew on this. <laughs> back and said, Everything I wanted to say is in the outline. Just write it and show it to me, and I'll decide whether I want to put my name on it. <laughs> so I wrote that. I was just in existential dread for months while I was working on, on that book. Um, the, the subsequent, we did another one after that. That was, uh, it was uh, less, less harrowing. But um, so I sent it to him, um, and I, you know, it was in a state of exhaustion and uh, over and Kierkegaardian terror angst. And um, two days later, he, he wrote back. He said, "This is fine. I'll put my name to it." That was it. That was the end. So, and, um, and the thing is, he oh, always. Wait, wait, he he always... I'm sorry. He did want to change two words. Actually, he called me. I'm sorry. Now that I'm, he called me. And said, he said he wanted to change two words, and he told me why he wanted to change two words. I said, I, I think that's fine, Dave. We can, we can do that. And, um, and that was it. And we, um, you know, and after that, I became pretty pretty good um acquaintances with dave I interviewed him many times on this podcast for instance but, and we always met at conventions and had whenever we were there dinner and i went to his birthday pig picking um which mark can probably tell you much much more about which were amazing that um Mark Van Ayn had a lot to do with as well. And, you know, I got to know this guy from his, uh, you know, his, he wasn't irascible. Um, he was just from Iowa. <laughs> There's was, a song from the Music Man about that, I think, right? Yeah. <laughs> there, you know, what Steve said about his uh, amazing erudition is, is just so cool. He read Latin. Uh, historians in the original, and you know, it, it, it was for fun for him because he was an adept, but it wasn't something you know, that, that was a difficulty to brag about. I felt like he was ultimately my sort of impressionist, and he was a, he was a, a stoic himself, so he was shifted out of. Uh, well, Tony, you mentioned um, Mark might have some insight into. Uh, some uh the birthday parties and things like that mark i know you edited the onward drake anthology i think i interviewed all of you guys about that although it's been years now but i feel like i was part of that podcast um but you know you uh maybe can uh talk about i mean we can all you can all talk about uh david drake uh as a friend and as a uh, you know personally but i think you had a, a 
I mean, you guys were very close friends. Um, and so how did that come about? How did you guys become friends? When did you first meet him? And uh, just kind of talk about that relationship. Yeah, so um, in 1978, I moved uh, out of grad school down here. And I had um, made friends in the local SF scene up at uh, Penn State, where I was in grad school in computer science. And one of the people in that scene was an artist named George Chastain. And he said, oh, if, if you're going to North Carolina, you got to look up David Drake and Carl Edward Wagner, and you got to go to this Durham Minicon thing, because I collected pulps and comic books, and I still do. And so Durham Minicon was what it sounded like, a monthly Minicon in the back of backyard of these two brothers who lived with their mother and they had an amazing pulp collection and people would set up tables and it was free as long as you were doing sf so it was it was old school it was books books pulps there were no toy you know maybe the occasional toy but nothing else and it was just people who loved it local writers local fans and they funded it by their mom made sandwiches and canned drinks and you paid a little bit to buy the sandwiches and stuff and you hung out all day so I went there and met Dave um, April, May, 1978, and met Carl Wagner there. And I was at that point a guy who had um, was starting to write stories. I hadn't written anything. My my first semi-pro sale was 81. My first pro sale was 82. But Carl and Dave both treated me like a writer, which was an incredible kindness. And in 79, Hammer Slammers came out. And I knew Dave as a horror writer from the early Arkham House stuff. And, you know, there's a, a case to be made and, and uh, a number of critics have made it that Dave was throughout his career a horror writer. He just switched the topic areas and the types of horror that he wrote. So Dave and I got to know each other a little bit. And then he used to have the pig picking at the house that he and Joe used to own in town before he bought the land out in uh, Chatham County. And so I went to a couple of those and we became closer friends and we bonded there over PTSD. Um, Dave's from war and me from a combination of uh, child abuse and being in a paramilitary youth gang for three years. And so we had that in common. We had the field in common um, and we became really good friends and uh, started going to dinners together around 82. Like uh, I mentioned uh, in before we turn on the recording, his son was somebody I mentored in bodybuilding when he was 16 and hired him. Um, his wife, Joe, was nanny for our two kids for a long time. And the last, you know, I feel in, in honor of Dave, I, I have to be complete. You know, in the last few years, he and I were estranged. And that's something that I, um, Dave was always tried to be honest. And I don't think he was always accurate but he always thought he was accurate <laughs> and he had a great memory. Um, but I, I still cared about him. I'm still processing his death. And so we, we became tighter friends over the years. And um, we, from about 1990 until just a few years ago, we vacationed together every summer at the same beach where we always went. Our kids, my kids grew up there, his kids, um, there's a great story about his son and house watching for us and his first girlfriend on my waterbed. And I'm going to leave it there, <laughs> but, but it was, uh, 
one of the many moments that brought us all closer. And Dave and I, um, he encouraged me to write. And as I started selling stories, he encouraged me to write books. Um, and it took me a really long time to get over a lot of mental hurdles about that and, and did. And he, I've always been the kind of person that doesn't show my work till it's done as Tony knows well. And the only person in my first few books that ever saw them before Tony or Jim was uh, Dave. I would send them to Dave and he would give me a very small number of notes, fortunately. But I I learned outlining, Steve talked about. I, my first novel, I outlined, I think I have 13,000 words for a 102,000 word novel. Not quite to the scene level, but uh, fairly intense outlines. Uh, but we, yeah, we stayed together. And what ended up happening was we started doing a 4th of July show, a fireworks show at his house. That became an event. We had this extended family. Dave um, referred to me as paterfamilias for our extended family. And he would always say, he said, no, I'm older, but you're, you're the father of the extended family. I'm the crazy uncle that brings the gun when we need it. And I was, that was absolutely true. Uh, there are a lot of guns at Dave's house, a lot of guns. It would be the absolute wrong place to burgle if Dave was home. <laughs> and um, Dave and I, our families, you know, we did Thanksgiving together. We did Christmas together. We did all of that for um, a couple decades. And, uh, you know, I miss him. I miss when we were closer. Uh, and uh, he taught me a lot about writing stuff and what everybody else said I think people knew you know his erudition in the field he had an amazing encyclopedic memory for old stories he and Hank would get together and and talk just ridiculous levels of obscurity he didn't just collect all the pulps he oh no he read them he had read them all yeah yeah, yeah I was I, I should have mentioned I was really impressed by his knowledge of the field um you know he could quote authors that I have never heard of and I thought I was reasonably well informed in the history of the field but he just cast me in the shade completely and I would also add one thing about Dave that people may not realize is that Dave was um, I guess I'll do two things real quick Dave was an incredible believer in primary sources so if you went to Dave and you had read books about something you were never ready for the conversation because he had read the memoirs of the people in the thing, uh, as Steve and others mentioned, frequently in the original Latin, but for many historical events, he read what was there. And I think he liked that before Vietnam, but after Vietnam, reading stories about it angered him because it wasn't, um, it wasn't accurate. It didn't reflect what really happened to the people there. And the other thing about Dave, and I feel obliged to say this, because Dave suffered a lot of accusations of being a war pornographer. And that was never his intent, never. And, and in fact, one time I, when he was railing about it again, I said, look, write an afterword. I know you won't do it as an intro, so do it as an afterword and tell them what they meant. Tell them what you meant. Explain it to them. I said, then critics will know what to say. And he laughed at me, but he did it. And the first review that came out stole from his afterward. <laughs> not going to name names because I'm not Dave in that way, but it stole from his afterward because he was trying not to glorify violence, but to show the incredible damage and stain it does. 
And the other thing that I wanted to mention, because I feel like this doesn't get out enough is, and I, and I say this with the confidence that he would allow this, like me, like a lot of people with PTSD, Dave was an incredibly damaged man. And he was a smart and sensitive guy in law school who, because he believed in doing his duty for his country, found himself in Vietnam. And two days after leaving it, was back in law school, completely unprepared to be back in the world. And at one con, one time, Dave would rarely talk about things that happened that weren't humorous. But one time at a con, somebody was, uh, it was a World Fantasy Con in Montreal, and he was on a panel about violence. And he said to the audience, so, you know, you want to understand what it's like and what the books don't explain. So you're in a Jeep with three other people. You're driving through town. You're just going back to base. There's nothing going on, you think. And then you see an old beater coming at you and suddenly six rifles poke out of it and they're pointing at you. What do you do? You, you open fire. You have to open fire because it's you or them. So you open fire and you blow it to shit because it's you or them. And then you drive by and nobody in it is over 14. And what are you supposed to do with that? What choice do you make differently? What do you do with that? And the answer is you get messed up for life with it and and you do the best you can do and there's no choice you would make differently because it was you were them but you're left with that horror and dave paid a price for that and he wrote to keep it between the lanes you know and and i think that he i have seen dozens maybe a hundred letters from vets that got it and got what he did and he helped those people but for people listening who may think of Dave is just somebody who glorified war. That was never what he was about. It was never that, but he did glorify competence. And he did glorify that if you're in a situation where people are shooting at you, you do want people with you who are going to shoot back well, because otherwise you're going to die. And um, Dave and I, me and my time in the paramilitary group and, and Dave in the war did a lot of things that we're not happy about, a lot of things we're not proud of. And you carry that around. And I think that to fully understand Dave, people need to acknowledge the damage he was grappling with. And he was never out to glorify violence. He, he did appreciate competence. And, 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 and I think he, his style was so spare right that uh that people who wanted to believe the worst of him if they looked at it were 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 putting into his words things that were not there um and you could right because his style was so spare and i think i think those afterwards that you suggested were just brilliant right where where all the things that he showed and didn't tell in the in his literary works he could tell about um, in, in the afterwards, um, and uh, but but I think anybody with uh, who, and again it doesn't it doesn't have to be military PTSD, right? Anybody who has um, who has gone through um, something that could give you PTSD, when reading his works, sees what he put in there, right? They they don't misinterpret. They they there's they they understand that there's no 
no glorification. There's no, it's not militaristic, right? Um, it's, um, it is about the military. It's about people who fight. Um, but, but, but you're correct that, that anybody who tries to um, uh, put that canard um, you know, in, in the context of Dave Drake is is um, is lying, right? They're, they're, they are being um, they are being dishonest, and, uh, or engaging in projection, or engaging in projection, or both, right? Um, yeah. And so I think I, I think it, I think it's up to us who did understand him and who do understand his works to um, uh, to defend them. Um, what Dave was and to let to let people know who haven't yet read them. Look, this is you know what they're saying. What some of what some people say about them is not correct. Dave was bleakly realistic about violence. Um, the thing is, I, I think I mentioned that that Dave's knowledge of history was encyclopedic, um, but also he understood the difference in in viewpoint and outlook and life experience between contemporary North America and previous periods of history. Um, I, I, I spent most of my teenage years from about the age of 11 through my late teens in, uh, in East Africa. And, you know, the, the first year we were there, there was a famine and I was stepping over dead people in the street. Um, and a little while later, two guys on the next, on the, in, worked on the next property over from ours, got blitzed on Nubian gin and sliced each other to death with pangas and I walked into the room. The bodies were outside under very red sheets and there were pools of blood on the floor and on the walls and there was a thumb in the corner and something dropped on my head so I looked up and blood dripped into my face. Um, you know, and the thing is you can live, if uh, unless you're severely disadvantaged, you can live your entire life in contemporary America or Canada uh, or most of Europe and never see a person, a dead person, never see anyone die. Um, and I remember when I came back to North America, um, one of the things that struck me was everyone was really wimpy about that sort of thing. Um, you know, because I'd, I'd gotten more or less case hardened to it. There was a, a leprous beggar outside the butcher shop where we went, where my mom and I went to uh, do our shopping for meat. You didn't have any face, just holes. Um, so, you know, you get used to that sort of thing. Um, and the impact is different um, when people have no, no, no experience at, at a younger age of that. But in, say, Rome, um, which Dave was intimately familiar with, um, you'd be seeing that sort of thing all the time. And people had a different uh, mentality about that sort of stuff. Even if you were a very privileged, very rich Roman, you'd be seeing a lot of violence and you'd be seeing dead people. Uh, there'd be crucifixions outside the city gates. Um, you know, you'd be going to the arena for beast fights and, and gladiatorial combats and that sort of stuff. And you'd see violence in the streets. So people just had a different lived experience. And it's hard to make people with who've grown up in our culture, uh, appreciate the difference that makes to personalities and stuff. And I think Dave was very good at that. Yeah, he was, definitely. I mean, uh, the the way I kind of came to Dave's work originally was uh, uh, Belisarius with uh, with Eric Flint 
and uh, the sharp end was what I first picked up uh, of his work, uh, along with Cornell and and uh, the, the War World series, while I was living overseas in Switzerland. Uh, not related to any kind of military experience, just a, a kid of uh, living over there. Um, but uh, I continued to read him, and then I uh, devoured your uh, the the Warlord the Raj series uh, with him. And then uh, it's it's funny because having these these two uh, Mark and Stephen here, they were there the the weekend that I first met Dave and uh, and and uh, actually Mark as well, and I think I was introduced to Stephen as well. But the uh, they were doing a signing for World Fantasy in San Jose. I was a police officer for twenty years, uh, and I was uh, it was in my area the the bookstore. And the one of the guy, the bookstore owner, Alan, was like, "Hey, I've got uh, I've got these authors coming into town for World Fantasy. You ought to come and hang out and and do stuff." And I'm like, "Yeah, does anybody need driving around? Like, you know, Dave Drake or Steve or?" And he's like, "Yeah, Dave Drake wants to see the Diego Rivera murals." Uh, and I'm like, "Okay, I'm his man." So uh, I I took the day off, and I had to talk to my sergeant about taking that day off. And he was he's a big fantasy fan. And he's like, Dave Drake, white. And I'm like, dude, shut your mouth. <laughs> and I got the, I got the, the day off and, and drove him around and had a quite pleasant time because Dave hated to drive. He loved to ride, but he absolutely hated to drive. Um, and, and it was funny because being able to talk to David about uh, the, the writing process as a very fledgling author, never having or a writer, never having had anything published. And just trying to, you know, uh, break in and kind of talk to folks about it. But he's like, you know, the uh, riding lets me clear my head. And I had just started riding my uh, motorcycle back and forth to work. And I was a lot happier at home and I was a lot happier at work because you can't concentrate on anything else other than what you're doing right in front of you, uh, which allows a lot of the, the traumas of the day to fall away. Right. Or the they, things they that written about that, I believe. Um, yeah. It's a that, that motorcycle was a big deal to him for his process. Yeah. Motorcycles, I think he had like five yeah. at the, there. <laughs> he says you need at least two at all times if you're going. Yeah, so he he uh, um, so I was at the signing later on, and I hear this guy complaining to his uh, his lady friends about how he's you know he's seated between Steve Sterling and Dave Drake for the this signing. Is me. One book out. One book don't, out. Don't don't spoil it, man. <laughs> so he's he's complaining about how he's not going to get hurt. And I go to Alan, the owner at Borderlands Books in San Francisco, and I go, "Hey, Alan, who's that guy?" He's like, "It's Mark Van Name. He's just got this new book out." And I was like, "Okay, cool. Give me one of his books." So he's like, "It's going to be Mark's got uh, you know considerable computing and engineering background." So he's like, "Yeah, it's going to be like a sine wave of." of me at the bottom of it between these two people. And the only people are going to want me to sign anything are the overflow that are still trying to hang out in front of David and trying to hang out in front of Steven. And I waited for those conditions to actually exist because he was accurate. He knew what he was talking about. <laughs> and uh, I waited for those to exist. And then I pulled my shirt aside from the back of the room and bellowed in my voice. Is that Mark Van name? Would you sign my boob? <laughs> and uh, Dave just, you know, he had a, a an amazing laugh. It was it, it was like the the braying of a donkey crossed with the funniest laugh you've ever heard. It was he really had a great laugh. Dave he, was the guy you wanted in a comedy club. Yes, absolutely. If he got what you were putting down, you were definitely the guy you wanted there. 
so yeah, that was my first uh, weekend with David, and uh, I got to watch him and uh, another uh, luminary of the field play uh, play toy with a mouse between them with an editor who had they felt had uh, jilted them out of monies that were owed to them at that convention. Uh, there was uh, quite a bit of uh, dimension to David and everything. And when it, one of the things that kind of occurs to me listening to everybody's stories about him is uh, how effective he was. Despite what was bothering him all the time. He was constantly uh, in that period that I knew him anyway, available to talk about stuff. He would talk to you about things that were going on and he just knew. So remarkable. Yeah. Dave had a tremendous ability to concentrate, um, you know, to, to focus on what was in front of him and put other stuff out of his mind completely. Um, and Jesus, I wish I could do that as well as he did. Well, I, that was the other thing. So in that, in that, uh, I think it was San Jose still, uh, or maybe it was, no, it was Columbus. Uh, World Fantasy, he's there and he's studying from primary sources. He's got this enormous tome in Latin that he's got across his lap as we're waiting to go out to dinner. Uh, and uh, I'm there with Mark and and a few other uh, Bain folks, uh, Chuck Gannon as well. And uh, the same editor that had uh, royally peeved David and uh, a few other luminaries uh, was coming down the escalator. And I hear this whoop. As this tome closes, like the big, you know, the thunderous roar of the wizard's tome, as he closes it to go confront him, and he, 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 it was the scathingest, most awesome takedown I've ever heard, and briefly delivered. And then he's like, "Yeah, let's go to dinner." So he he was always uh, uh, he was always full of surprises. He he could surprise you and and uh, make you laugh, uh, and again despite or because of the the culmination of all these experiences that he'd had um i i did enjoy his horror uh i think more than uh, than most the bale fires is one of my favorite collections of anybody's work um he's got some amazing he just I mean, he was just amazing really brilliant uh, and redliners which you know nobody's mentioned but is the i think the quintessential uh work dealing with coming back to coming back to civilization after being in a war zone or I think uh, the girl making I mean Dave thought that was his masterpiece and I yeah. I also think it's his masterpiece um I think he it was just uh he transcended all the things that he'd been trying to do in his fiction and made this um this and it, it's things that um the vets constantly um, um identified with and, and he made a great deal of connections and talked to a lot of people and helped a lot of people through that novel as well. Kevin, yeah. I was going to add three quick things since I have to have to drop off at the half hour. Um, one thing you mentioned style. A lot of people, there's high style or you don't have style. Dave, like Hemingway, like a lot of people, and I'm not saying he wrote like Hemingway, Dave wrote like Dave, but there's a lot of ways to have style, and Dave had a very distinctive style. It just wasn't floweries. And I, and I think that people who thought he was an artless writer, and I've read some critics saying that there was no style there, really aren't paying attention at all. He had a very effective and very clear style. The second thing you've, you've hinted at, Dave 
sometimes usefully, sometimes not, did not forgive quickly or easily and could hold on to a grudge. So if you wronged Dave, he would remember it for an unreasonably wrong time. Yeah, he's not a good man to cross. No. The other thing I have to mention when Griffin mentioned focus is that uh, many folks know, and he wrote about, but many don't know, Dave liked to write outside. No matter what the weather, he wrote outside. And he was an early adopter of word processing. He actually had a word processor back in the early 80s. And he went to computers and for, until his son took it over for about 20 years, I and a small circle of people were his tech support. And he called me over one time and I had to drive the forever distance to his house because his computer was just fritz. He couldn't, he was working and it was 18 degrees and he, and it just was failing in mysterious ways and he couldn't understand it. And so I looked at it, early LCD screens froze, liquid it's crystal liquid. display. <laughs> liquid, yeah. And the damn screen had frozen solid, but the keyboard was still working. And so <laughs> we, I actually was a columnist in the uh, 90s for a, mag a, a tech magazine, PC Week, and a lot of others, but I wrote for PC Week as a column, and I wrote about the Dave Drake outdoor test and actually got him for a time ruggedized laptops so that he could keep working in these temperatures where his his coffee was freezing over, and or his tea, uh, typically tea, was freezing over, and his laptop still had to keep going. And it was um, a very specialized use case, but until laptops left hard disks behind, his screens would freeze, his hard disks would freeze, keyboards would ice over. He was incredibly hard on computers and uh, would just switch to the next one. He just kept a rogues gallery of nearly dead computers that we kept limping along for him. But he, he was very focused and determined. And, and, and I, I will say that you know, he took his job seriously, right? You know, he took writing as a job. So he didn't write when he felt like it. He, he wrote every day because that was his job. Um, and he was very, very proud of um, always turning in books when he said he was going to. Um, and... Uh, and, and to the end, even when he was uh, fighting um, horrible health things that were misdiagnosed for years, um, you know, he, you know, he was a pro and he took great pride in being a pro. Um, and he also, you know, held the people around him to that high standard, um, which, as, as Mark could you know, point out, you know, I am rather sad that I am now going to be the only one telling stories about my failures dave won't be telling them anymore <laughs> but 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 i will tell the you know the 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 time that i misedited dave drake um antenna antennae antennas um they're different <laughs> yeah i i heard him go on a diatribe about octopus octopi and, yeah and that, that, that one was that one wasn't me but no. can we can we tell the fake story cover and first two pages story or is that oh uh, yeah no, to, not yet. no that story yeah. that's the great so, all right yeah. so dave if you have kids in the audience this would be the right time to take them away for some <laughs> and, and not to listen um dave had a wicked sense of humor uh so for example one year at the beach dave and i went into this 
a thrift shop. The house wasn't available yet, so we're just looking for a way to pass time. And they had these horrible postcards that were envelopes, rather, that you put letters in that had things like so-and-so's whorehouse and everything. And so Jim got one of those, by the way. And so he would write letters and postcards and put them in these awful envelopes and mail them to people. But this extended to his work. So one time he had a novel that he was mailing in. This is back in the days when you would mail the paper in. And he decided to have a little fun because somebody had uh, tweaked him and he decided to tweak them. And he put on the title page, Fucking Bloody Dead Corpses by David Drake. And then he wrote two pages of Battlefield Fucking <laughs> Bloody Dead Corpses, including graphic skull fucking and just, I told the kids to leave, and just the worst <laughs> heinous shit for two pages. And then you turn and the manuscript was there. And Tony, weren't you uh, one of the people around? I, I, I was in the office um, and I may have even, you know, you know, oh. pass that envelope onto the desk of the editor at the time. I know who it was. We're not going to name yes. it. No name. <laughs> but the editor, but I, I, understandably, I was to have read it. <laughs> yes, the editor understandably reacted with, oh, <laughs> you know, OMG doesn't really go as far as, as those reactions. But, but so. even at that point, the instruction, the editorial instruction from Jim was. No. Oh, no, 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 we, we lost, we. Cody froze just at this moment. <laughs> oh, no, no, you cannot freeze on the gym instruction. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Maybe the instruction was print whatever, Dave. So. <laughs> so that is that's peak Dave right there, too. It's a computer. Hey, Cody, so we had a computer problem. So we at the worst possible moment, you said the instruction from Jim was. So could you? That's it. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, was was don't change a word of Dave Drake's uh, materials. Yeah. I, I, I feel Dave is absolutely haunting us. <laughs> but it was the kind of thing that you people didn't get about Dave. Like in in one of the books, he he was uh, doing the young adult follow on. I forget the name of the author, but he'd love the author as a kid. And so he, he wanted a giant menacing animal, but he wanted to the hunter, right? Yeah, the hunter. And so he wanted and created the marmot of doom, which plagued this tribe. And he told me about the book. He said, yeah, I'm writing this, this book and basically we're going to start with a village and then I'm going to kill them all through animal deaths until only a few remain. And I'm like, oh, this is going to be so much fun. <laughs> but it, it and, was our, and, and this and this is where Harvey comes back in because there there was a sentence in the in the original manuscript. I don't know if it actually made it to the final thing, but a wild dog named Harvey came and <laughs> <laughs> named. <laughs> Years later, we did a series of videos when Dave was a guest at a con, which I I directed and edited with local friends as talent. And it was called The Lost David Drake. I still have this video, I've never released it publicly. And it was a series of interviews with people at various points in time when Dave was among other things, a feminist studies teacher, a drug dealer, <laughs> um, a, uh, a poet. And uh, in one of the sketches, 
he, I'm interviewing a, a friend of ours who's now a main cover designer, Jenny Ferris, and she's wearing this hippy dippy costume and saying, Dave, Dave, oh, we knew him as Marmot. And, <laughs> and so there's, there's this incredible backstory that we made up, as well as uh, you can find on Dave's site. I, I made up the copy one time for a tribute to Dave of, and Jenny to the cover layouts of all of these books as if written by Dave with Dave's candor, including um, something like um, Maddie and the M1 Amphibious, Amphibious Assault Vehicle and Dave's diet book, Shut Up and Stop Eating, which was... <laughs> which was really Dave's advice. That was his entire diet advice, shut up and stop eating, which is someone who spent most of his life heavy, definitely didn't work for me, but um, <laughs> that was Dave. I, I am going to have to drop. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm little Well, Mark, more. thank you so much for being here. Thanks and, for having and me. Talking about I look forward to it. Yeah. I'm sorry I couldn't see you. Mark. We could do this for 10 hours and not right. run out of <laughs> He was that kind of guy. All right, see you all later. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, well, I, we've mentioned Redliners, and Tony just uh, held up the Hunter Returns. Um, what, you know, as we said, we could do this for 10 hours, but we, we probably need to not take up the next 10 weeks of podcast, uh, as, although we could. Um, but uh, let's talk about the work a little bit, and, and if for folks out there maybe have never read Dave or have, you know, what, what's something you would recommend? I mean, I guess Redliners we say is, is maybe the place to go, but is there a more obscure thing you would recommend or what's your favorite or however you want to answer this question? I wouldn't Let's talk about Dave's books. I, was, I mean, maybe you can. Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't start there. Okay. Well, That's unless, pretty, unless yeah. you, well, unless you know a veteran who's having trouble, then I'd go ahead and, you know, skip all, skip everything else. And let's go ahead and read it because it'll, it'll speak to him. Uh, Lord of the Isles, the fantasy series. Uh, if you want to do fantasy, that I think that was among Dave's best work, and it was great. Yep. Just I, yeah, I, I agree. I think that's his, his best fantasy series. Um, but if epic fantasy is not your thing, um, and urban fantasy um, is more your thing, then what you want is actually Old Nathan. Um, which is not urban; that's, it's actually Appalachian. Um, but but uh, but it's pasture punk. <laughs> pasture punk. There we go. Um, it, it was inspired. That's by, a cool genre. Um, I want to write for pasture punk. <laughs> I see an anthology of born. <laughs> Um, it, it was inspired by uh, the Silver John stories of Manly Wade Wellman, which I think are Wellman's best work, combining his fa his fantasy and his uh, his uh, sense of um, Southern literature. And this is Dave's contribution to Southern literature, um, the old Nathan stories, in a very different mode um, than uh, Redliners or Lord of the Isles um, or his science fiction or even his horror. Um, uh, but Dave really, he, he could do it all. Um, he, he, was, he was the dean of military science fiction, and, and, and that subgenre has sort of accreted around his work. But, but he loved the genre, the whole of the genre, and uh, science fiction and fantasy and horror. And he contributed great stuff to all of it. Um, I used to, um, yeah. on the podcast, I used to call him the Bane Ur writer, and um, he liked that. I think he liked that better than the Dean of Military Science Fiction, even. 
because he he really was sort of the um, the Mesopotamian beginnings, him and Jim Bain of 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 what Bain is. That sort yeah, of he's, story. He's sort of forward a Bain style. writer that predates Bain books, right? I mean, you know, so. Yeah, no, and, he, uh, he was the uh by the way he was the literary executioner for um and the estate for manly wade wellman and uh, i believe that he kept manly wade wellman uh in print and alive for for many more years after that um just by doggedly making sure that that wellman stories were available and that they could be anthologized well he even did and, that for uh, lovecraft too right love not uh lovecraft himself but uh I, the name escapes me. Howard, uh, Robert Howard's Lovecraft stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. There, there's a lot of stuff that Bain published because Dave Drake was the advocate of it. Which I mean, that's how we end up um, publishing Barry Maltzberg's literary essays, right? <laughs> Without Dave Drake, that doesn't happen, right? Despite all of his his erudition, his knowledge of Latin and everything, he was he was cool. He could talk to anybody, and you know, so like I don't, I didn't know anything about any anybody when I kind of first met him and was talking to him. I just knew what I had read and what I enjoyed, and he was always just, you know, genuinely like interested in what you had to say, even if you didn't necessarily have a whole lot to say, right? Uh, in that within the genre, that kind of stuff, you would never, uh, you would never experience the whip hand from him unless you had. You know, you showed your ass to him, yep. uh, at, at which point he would go ahead and, okay, look, you need to shut up. <laughs> but he never, uh, you know, it, if talking to a construction worker, he had expectations, not of anything else other than you're going to be a good person. And that, that was cool with him. He didn't, you know, he was, despite his intellectual achievements, he never looked down on anybody. So uh, always remarkable. He never looked down on anybody because of what they did or their background. Right. He did look down on people who were like, who deserved it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> true. True. He wasn't the biggest fan of copy editors. Yeah. No. <laughs> oh, yes. well, no. He was. He was. He was a fan of competent copy editors. If you had, yeah, if I, you tried to correct he, his Latin or <laughs> octopus yeah. octopi, you were gone. You know? Spell traveler wrong because he had a way he wanted travel. <laughs> yeah i mean you know i had a copy editor once who removed every single semicolon in the book yeah. well i mean they and, they are evil but still but <laughs> so i i so i did the um as as pasture punk anthology may have just gotten born here uh christopher rocchio had the idea for the chronicles of david's anthology we did and david drake uh was nice enough to give us a story and uh, I think, you know, short story, whatever reason, we gave it to a, a new copy editor. And, like, he did a good job, and he, he still works for us now. And I think, but we did have to, like, tell, tame him down a little bit because he, like, went through and, and I, like, and some stories needed fixing. And then, but David Drake's, so I was like, oh, no. And I had to, like, go put all of it back the way, you know, because he was like, you know, maybe we don't need the adverb here. I'm like, put put it back whatever day put it down like put it back you know so uh, that was a close one so but <laughs> i think it was for that i'm pretty sure it was for that anthology anyways it was just because he took i mean he took so much care with his prose yeah well being spare like tony was saying 
being spare and and you know there's not a misplaced word and so yeah you start playing with that you hit your peril <laughs> yeah because he, he achieved precise results with his words he evoked like certain images or feelings or whatever and he did it with the minimal amount of verbiage because you know too elaborate and you get in the way and Dave it didn't can. get in the way no no um, it always seemed sort of Latin. The, the thing that yes. he was doing, it seemed like he's building a Roman wall or an aqueduct or something with his prose. You know, everything is, is perfectly utilitarian and perfectly beautiful at the same time. And the beauty balanced. sort of rises from that utility. And, you know, and balanced. You know, they're, they're, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, going back to, to favorite uh, favorite works of his, Starliner is a standalone that I think is a great one to introduce people to. Um, if if you're if you're not dealing with PTSD, but you're just looking for a great science fiction story, Starliner is a great science fiction story. Um, and the RCN series, which is a post Redliner um, series of works, um, they're buddy stories, right? They're they're a man and and, and a woman, a star captain and a librarian, uh, <laughs> who have adventures together, and they're great fun. Um, I mean, they're they're not fluffy, um, you know the. Dave, you know, I'm, I'm trying to say Dave didn't write Fluffy, but yes, there are some Fluffy fantasy short stories where he, he could write. I think, he could write. I'm, he I'm pretty write. sure there's. I'm pretty sure there's a Fluffy bunny in a title of one of his stories. <laughs> yeah, the stories are great, and they're you know they're adventure stories. Um, yeah, I mean, and the librarian is is a crack pistol shot. He is. Well, she's the badass, and the 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 captain is also. It's, it's of course a uh, take on uh, the O'Brien uh, sailing era novels, the Aubrey Maturin books, and you know he was very clear about that. I think he pitched it as that to you, right, Tony? Well, but to I, I think Jim pitched that to to Dave that um, yeah. you know Jim enjoyed the uh, uh, the O'Brien book so much. They were really close. That's another thing we should probably mention. Yeah, yeah. The Jim Bain, yeah. Dave Drake uh, friendship. Well, oh, and and Tom Doherty. Uh, yeah, that was yeah. one of my first experiences. Was was with uh, that same world fantasy was uh, uh, going to one of the parties, and uh, I'm like, oh, well, there's Dave, and Dave's over there talking to Tom Doherty, and they're they're hanging out. They spent literally four hours uh, talking about their experiences. You know, and it was just it was a pretty amazing thing to listen to to be a fly on the wall for oh yeah yeah absolutely they 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 both i mean tom tom is still around and still telling stories about publishing and uh, um and how it works right yeah. um talking about how how dave truly understood publishing um that's you know that's one of the reasons right is that he talked to people who truly <laughs> understood how publishing um works and, uh, and and he was familiar you know, had such a such a broad knowledge of the history of the field he was interested in the history of the field um that uh yeah it was great 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 fun to talk to and you could you could learn so much from it um just just chatting just chatting with Dave. but i mean again i go back to that he truly loved the field right um and, uh, and and he he did everything he could to um, I, I don't know. Support is the wrong word, but contribute to it, right? 
um, to, you know, to, to keep the field going. Um, well, I mean, you know, talking to, to Eric Flint and he had almost exactly the same experience that Stephen and Tony did, you know, it was, it was, you got this uh, lengthy outline that was, you know, a roadmap to success. These are, a, this is a way, not the only way, but this is a way you can plot out a book down to the scene and have everything there. And Eric, you know, Eric was like, he, he was a huge fan of that. And when Eric was telling me about it, he was kind of complaining because he felt like he kind of knew what he was doing at the time, you know, but, but he was, he was also like there for, but for strict plot structure, there was nothing better than that experience to be the journeyman writer uh, on that, on that project to know how to do a plot. And and Dave never, Dave never gave himself credit for that. He, yeah. he thought anybody could do this. He thought anybody could write that outline and any anybody could um could you know could just toss off that many <laughs> beautifully structured novels to work with so many different people. Um and and, and like and, and he was wrong, right? He was wrong there. That's right. hard to do. Um, yeah. it's it's not something everybody can do. And it is incredibly beneficial to newer writers who don't necessarily have the intuitive understanding that he did um to be able to uh to work with the dave drake outline sorry i stepped on you Stephen. sorry no uh dave dave had, a sense, dave had an uncanny sense of the structure of a story you know the bones and he saw it quicker and better than most people certainly better than i did or do, um, you know, I've known writers who write 200,000 word books and then have to cut 300,000 from their initial manuscript. And it can work, but it takes a lot of extra time and effort. And they did the structure first and it shows, you know, the bones are smoothly integrated under the flesh. And it's, uh, it, was, it was an amazing and really impressive accomplishment. And it, it worked well with his style, which was, as you, as everyone has said, spare. And he could do that because the underlying structure was good and worked together smoothly. He didn't have to paper over things. And uh, as I said, very impressive. One thing that um, he did have a lyricism when he was doing certain things, um, the... Um, the the star travel method that he came up with with the master and commander uh the the rcn book sorry <laughs> was um was 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 analogous to sailing and so, so he had them and then one of them he has uh leary like go outside and see it happening and, and so it's just beautiful it, it's a be- it's really hard to write about um say the experience of of music or um, some sort of trip through hell or whatever, and and not just bore the you know because you're telling somebody your dreams, um, and, but it was a beautifully logical sort of um, science fiction magic that he had conceived, and he told and he he wrote about it in such a pretty way that um, you could picture it, you felt like you were there, and it also it got to you and gave you that sense of wonder. Um, that science fiction um, does, and it was uh, it, it was highly effective. I always those are my favorite parts of those books is when they did the jumps or whatever they called them. Um, 
Yeah, one of the one of the things that it kind of strikes me about him too is that he was always uh, he mined his personal experience uh, more than, uh, or at least maybe because I know about the stuff, but more than just about anybody else. And uh, my I was privileged to be on a panel with Dave and uh, John Ringo and a few others. Uh, it's no crap there I was, and uh, we were sitting there, and uh, I was next to John, and Dave was further down the table. And Dave told us the, the story of where the cyan bolts come from in the hammer slammers from the power guns. And uh, it, there was uh, it, he to not speak out of turn and tell his story, but it, John and I both turned to each other and went, <laughs> that's where that came from. We were like, Oh, it's so enthusiastic. And it goes back to what Tony was, uh, was talking about with the fandom, you know, everybody in the audience who was a David Drake fan, which was most of them were just, floored by the fact that here's the story of what what happened with that why that came about and it had to do with him uh getting out of his tank in vietnam to uh urinate in a our empty artillery shell and uh being off the com communications you know they had the radio headsets that plugged into the tank he was off of that when they had a mad minute and they you know basically they blazed uh, uh, all their ammunition into the uh into the jungle to provoke anybody out there to to attack them so that they would not be ambushed uh and they had this particular ammunition that was entirely detested by every tanker because it was wildly inaccurate so they were trying to get rid of it and the timer fuse on it was a cyan color as it went down range so it was almost like a, a trailer or tracer that followed along with it uh, before the timer exploded on the on the round um and uh so just to hear that and to be there present for him to talk about this personal experience you know the 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 hammer slammers when they're talking about the uh the air cars versus the tanks and what what it was like to be in one or the other you know, all of that stuff was just always very highly personal but never so projected that you couldn't get around you know it was it was in dave's voice but it wasn't necessarily oh this is dave's story uh he was always able to kind of put you in that seat as a reader um which was uh, is an impressive feat for somebody who was born after vietnam ended and uh you know but still managed to like wow this is an experience so i remember one time he told me just offhanded how they used to sit around uh, and warm themselves by burning C4. Um, I was like, it's just like one of the many stories. That, that well, and the, and the uh, you know, the, the worst detail possible in his, his, his unit was the uh, burning the crap, uh, diesel and human crap in a 50 gallon drum. Just, uh, you know, he, he talks about that frequently as, as one of the worst experiences possible. Yeah. He had a lot. I mean, Vietnam. I, you know, of course, as Mark mentioned, and, uh, you know, I think it made him as a writer. Um, it. I don't really care about whether writers are damaged or not. I just like it when they're good. So, um, whatever else it did, it gave him. It gave him that subconscious uh, urge that carried him through the rest of his life. And he, man, he could really write um, as a result. 
Well, yeah, and that, that was one of the things, too. If he'd become a lawyer, it would have been a tragedy for the world. Or stayed a lawyer. Yeah, if he'd stayed a lawyer. Stayed a lawyer, yes. Yeah, is yeah. He, he sold, uh, he'd sold stories before he ever went off, right? Didn't, oh, yeah. he, didn't he sell in high school? Arkham House, yeah. 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 Yeah, he did. He, he and Hank Davis both. That, that was one of the things that uh, uh, editor emeritus Hank Davis and uh, and he shared uh, that experience of being that wide-eyed, you know, writer, you know, proto-writer when you're very, very young and selling stories and then going off to Vietnam and having everything change. Um, and, uh, and they, they, they both went on to careers in publishing. Um, and, uh, but but yeah, it it changes you. It does change you. So actually, um, after I read Dave, I understood some things that I hadn't before, including some cryptic remarks that my father had made about World War II. Yeah. He was a he was a gunner, and uh, he mentioned once that after after action, you shouldn't uh, a gunner shouldn't go near uh, places that infantrymen hung out. And I asked him why, and he said. Artillery is approximate. <laughs> I didn't really understand the implications yeah. of that until after I'd read some of Dave's stories. Yeah. I, mentioned that to Dave, I mentioned that to Dave once and he thought it was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> now, this remove, he found it, was, found it was hilarious, but at the time he probably didn't. Right? Yeah. You know that, uh, I mean, we should probably just drop it in. The, um, the tabletop game that got made out of Hammer Slammers, people loved that game still, even from the, and it was just, it's a beautifully crafted little thing. I uh, I saw it once, just to mention and, that. And, and, and what was, was John, John Lambshead, was he, was he involved in that Yes, he's, the one, who, he's yeah. the one who wrote it, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. John, John was another very good friend of, of, of Dave's um, in, in, in the latter part of his life, and um uh, Dave and, and Joe took vacations over in England and, uh, and, and visited with John and uh, enjoyed many stimulating conversations um, uh, about nematodes and, and other exciting things. Um, I, I, I am not kidding here, okay? No, I know, I know you're not. That's, what, that's what's making me laugh because I know you're not kidding. Yeah, I, I, the, the coolest thing for me is that I, you know, my, myself and Casey as we wrote this uh, book called second chance angel and uh, both uh, Dave and Eric, Dave was like, absolutely. You know, immediately he was like, absolutely. I'll blurb the back. Um, and that was just the proudest moment for me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, I get, he was generous. Um, he was generous with his time and with himself. Um, and uh, he was uh, he was a really good guy, and he is going to be missed. Um, he's going to be missed because of the works that he uh, he's, he's not writing. Um, but he's going to be missed because we miss him. Um, and uh, and I think his stuff will live permanently. Absolutely, I I, I agree. Um, I think he's going to be somebody who's going to be read for a very very long time because he is that powerful a writer i think so and i think probably on that note um i just want to say thank you to uh you all for being here today uh, and mark van name who had to leave a little bit earlier uh to talk about that legacy and also the man behind it uh is such an important part of science fiction and fantasy and of course bane books history so um 
as we say, he will be missed. Um, but his, uh, I think his legacy, as we've said, will live on. So thank you all so much for being here to, to discuss it today. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, David. And now we bring you our audiobook serialization of Tinker by Wynn Spencer. Inventor girl genius Tinker lives in a near-future Pittsburgh, which now exists mostly in the land of the elves. She runs her salvage business, pays her taxes, and tries to keep the local ambient level of magic down with gadgets of her own design. When a pack of wargs chase an elven noble into her scrapyard, life as she knows it takes a serious detour. Tinker finds herself taking on the Elven Court, the NSA, the Elven Interdimensional Agency, technology smugglers, and a college-minded xenobiologist as she tries to stay focused on what's really important, her first date. Armed with an intelligence the size of a planet, steel-toed boots, and a junkyard dog attitude, Tinker is ready to kick butt to get her first kiss. Someone had been busy while she was gone. Her workshop trailer was back into place, square and level, as if it had never been moved. All the various power links were reconnected, and the air conditioner was even back in its slot. Someone had also gathered up all the blood-soaked bandages into a plastic garbage bag and then scrubbed the floor and work table clean of blood until the air smelled sweetly of peroxide. She would have suspected oil can of the progress, except that the flatbed was missing, and Riki's motorcycle sat next to the office door. When she found the offices empty, she wandered through the scrapyard, wondering where the grad student was. Had he gone with oil can on some errand? Or just taken a walk? Finally, something drew her eye toward the crane, and she found him at last, perched on the boom, sixty feet straight up. Still dressed in the black leather pants and jacket of yesterday, he sat on the end of the boom, a black dot on the blue sky. What the hell? Tink scrambled up the ladder to the crane's cage. What was he doing out there? Was he planning on jumping? How had he even gotten out there? She leaned out the window and saw that with the boom level, it was basically a straight walk out from the cage. Riki, Riki, she called in a low pitch, trying to get his attention without startling him. He glanced over his shoulder at her, the wind ruffling his black hair. Oh, there you are. Sorry that I was late. I got busy and forgot about you. She winced. Maybe that wasn't the right thing to say at a time like now. Your cousin was here. Riki stood up and casually picked his way back along the narrow boom. He had her data pad with him, and it caught the sun and reflected it in blazes of sheer white, blackness and brilliance, he moved through seemingly open sky. Oil can called Lane, and she let him know I was legit. She drew back from the window, gripping the operator's chair. Just watching him made her suddenly afraid of falling. What the hell are you doing out there? I have a thing about heights. He leaned in the window. Unlike yesterday, he seemed relaxed and pleased, a lazy smile on his face. They clear my head. I think better when I'm high up. Get in here. You're making me nervous. He laughed and swung his long, thin legs in and sat framed in the window. Sorry, I forget how much it bugs people. The sky was too perfect, though. She looked out the other window. 
The sky was a stunning deep blue, with massive stray clouds dotting it, huge and fluffy as lost sheep. Only when you gazed at them, you saw how complex they were, with lines so crisp they were surreal. A cool wind scented with the endless elfin forest just beyond the rim moved through the blueness, herding the sheep. It was the kind of sky she had sat and stared at as a child. Yeah, it's perfect. When she turned back to him, he was watching her, head cocked to one side. What? Just that you gave that thought before you passed judgment. Thanks, I think. He held out her data pad. I was reading over your notes. They're brilliant. She blushed as she snatched it back. I really didn't mean for other people to see them. She glanced down at the pad. He had her theory for magic's waveform pulled up. In the scratch space, he'd worked through her equations, double-checking her work. You followed this? Mostly. He held out his hand for the pad. She reluctantly surrendered it back. He closed her documents and enlarged the scratch space, clearing out his work. If I'm understanding this right, the multiple universes can be represented by a stack of paper. He drew several parallel lines. Earth is at the bottom of the stack, and Elfhome is somewhere higher up. He labeled two of the lines appropriately. Now, magic is coming through the entire stack as a waveform. He drew a series of waves through the stack. Since both the stack and the waveform are uniform, the point where the wave intersects the individual universe is constant. It always hits Earth at N and Elfhome at N plus one. In a nutshell, yes. Tinker looked at him in surprise. She had tried to explain her theory several times, but never using this model. It seemed so clear and simple. Of course, one of the reasons it was easy to understand was that Riki had ignored the fact that the universes weren't stacked like paper, but were overlapping in a manner that boggled the mind. To reach out and touch a point meant that your finger would almost be touching a zillion identical points across countless dimensions, separated only by that weird sideways step that made it another reality. Of course, only in the nearby realities were you touching that same spot. Farther away, you were touching another position. And farther away, like on Elfhome, you never existed. Because at some extremely distant time, life took a different path, and elves came about instead of humans. This is what I don't follow. Riki pulled up her notes again, scrolled through them, and found what he was looking for. I came here to see if I could wrap my brain around it. It's not fully formed. She sighed unhappily at it. I hate it when there are things in the universe that I don't understand. It looks like you're trying to figure out how to reach other dimensions. Well, the real question is, why do we always return to the same elf home? At least we seem to. All indications are that we return to the exact dimension. Well, the gate generates the same field. Consider all the universal changes. We start on Earth, which is spinning with the gate in orbit over China, so the veil effect has to travel through the Earth's core. Then the planet is slowly wobbling through the procession of equinoxes. We've got the moon's effect on Earth, and then the Earth moving around the sun, which is moving around the center of the Milky Way galaxy. We're talking about numerous vectors that we're traveling in at any one time. That Pittsburgh returns to the same elf home again and again indicates something other than just dumb luck. Riki grasped what she was talking about. 
like we're dealing with a universal constant. If you can travel from one dimension to a second dimension once, you'll always be able to? Yeah. Some commonality between the two dimensions. So how do you make a gate to a third dimension? A third dimension? Well, with countless dimensions available, why only travel to just one? Two seems to be plenty for us to handle right now. Well, surely there are more than just two dimensions with the same commonality. You'd expect something more like a string of pearls, linked together on a silk thread. Oh, that's elegant. Tinker gazed out at the perfect sky, but she was looking at a strand of planets strung together in a black universe. Earth, elf home, worlds unknown. But what's the thread? The gate traverses the thread. Yes? Do you understand how the gate works? Oh, not you two. What? All of a sudden, that's all anyone seems to care about, Tinker snapped. Gates and babies. Babies? Riki cocked his head at her. What did you do to your hair? I like it that way. She frowned at him. Her hair? She put a hand to her hair, touched the gelled tips, and suddenly recalled Nathan's date. Oh no, what time is it? Riki tugged up his leather jacket sleeve to show his watch. It read 4.38. Oh shit, I'm going to be late. Where are you going? On a date, to the fair. Hey, you should go. It's Midsummer Eve's fair tonight, so it's extra special. The fairgrounds are out just beyond the rim. She leaned out the window, but the hill blocked any sign of the fair. She pointed out the hill, explaining that the fairgrounds lay behind it. Just ask anyone for directions. On any old map, it's off of where Center Avenue used to be. Will there be a lot of humans there? Yeah, sure, don't worry, you won't stand out. Okay then, I'll be there. That was another installment in Win Spencer's Tinker, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars. <laughs> <laughs>